Hi, and welcome to episode 161 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, and I am the host, Dr. Laurel Malik. So today's episode is another In the Trenches episode. This is part of a, a series of podcasts where I'm chatting to practitioners at various stages of their career, primarily those involved in elite or pro sport to to delve into their journey, their their pathway from their initial trainings in sport and exercise nutrition, or or as researchers in similar fields who've ended up in in practice, perhaps. And today's guest is Charles Ashford, who, as you will discuss today, is the director of performance nutrition at the University of North Texas, but is actually an Englishman, a good old Brit who is one of our own graduates at the IOPN. So naturally, I'm very, very pleased and proud to see one of our our great, awesome students doing so well out there in their career. So before I unleash this episode upon you, and I'm sure you will enjoy listening in on this conversation and, and you'll learn your benefit in many different ways, particularly those of you that are current or aspiring performance nutritionists, where you'll learn from all these different in-the-trenches conversations. There are many different ways that these established practitioners have got to where they have in their careers. And that's why I felt that it would be useful for me to have many such conversations with many practitioners over the coming months so that you can share some of that experience and benefit from some of those learnings where I hope that impacts your own your own career and your own career path. So before you listen to today's conversation, do go check out our website at www.theiopn.com where you can learn about our 100% online diploma in performance nutrition, the same program that Charlie undertook himself as part of his own professional education journey. We have many other things we do, of course, at the IOPN, including this podcast where you can find out all the other episodes, the technical episodes, and this new growing collection of In the Trenches miniseries as part of the We Do Science podcast, and our practice management on nutrition coaching software platform specifically for sport and exercise nutritionists working in either private practice or in professional team sports. Lots of tools, lots of resources in our powerful software package that will enable you to be the best, the most effective practitioner you can be in your work as a sport and exercise nutritionist. So anyway, all of that's at the IOPN.com. I hope you enjoy this conversation I have with Charles Ashford. Take care. Hi, and welcome to the Institute Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I am the host, of course, Laurent Bannock, and my guest today is super special for many reasons. Charles Ashford, how you doing, mate? Doing very well, Lauren. Not so sure about super special, and I just mentioned offline, you know, as someone that's probably listened to every episode of this podcast, not, not quite sure what I'm doing on here, but hey, I really appreciate the invite and the opportunity to be on with you today. Oh, you're too modest. I mean, wing it. Look, we're all winging it. <laughs> it's just I've been winging it for longer than you. So look, there's lots of reasons why we should have this chat. So as the listeners will know, I have recently started to do a few sort of special edition episodes, which I'm calling In the Trenches. And this one, of course, is In the Trenches with Charles Ashford. And what I'm referring to here is 
it's a practice relevant phrase of being in the trenches because being in practice is a very different environment than being in a research lab or being in a classroom or what we see in a book or in a paper. A practice environment, the real world is a very complex, chaotic, uncertain environment where evidence-based science is a very important part of that. But in taking that information and then using it to inform your practice is another extension to effective practice. But being a practitioner, of course, is so much more than that because you're a person, you've got your own individual needs and preferences, you've got your own personality, you've got your likes and dislikes professionally. And, you know, the world in which we operate is just full of people with all their unique needs and issues. And then, of course, there's all the other stuff that happens in the real world, like bureaucracy, maybe the odd pandemic and the challenges that that throws up. And as we'll talk about in your case, you know, being from a different country and having to adapt to how things work in that country. And I don't mean language necessarily, but also the customs, the nuances that, especially in this situation where you, you of course, are in the States, we all speak the same language, English, but there's a difference between American English and English English. <laughs> and I know that too well because I was in the States for 10 years as, as well. So we'll get in, into all of that. But what I'm after here is, is a real deep dive into your experience as a practitioner, Charles. And of course, we're particularly, I'm particularly pleased to have this conversation with you because we've played a role in part of your journey because you're a graduate of our program in performance nutrition. And it's just been amazing to see your journey and, and where you are now. And yes, of course, you're you're still very much on your on your journey, but you have achieved a lot. And I think young aspiring practitioners who are thinking that they want to become a performance nutritionist, a sport and exercise nutritionist, they need to see beyond just the sexy science that we're all obsessed with, exercise science, exercise physiology, and see through the lens today this is your life, <laughs> Charles Ashford, what it's like to be a performance nutritionist in the context of you. So let's dial this back and briefly introduce yourself, Charles. We're going to spend some time on you, so I don't expect you to sum everything up in the first minute, but just very quickly, tell us about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again, Lauren, for having me on your kind of way too kind already here but like most i guess in the field started out brunel university in west london studying a sport and exercise sciences degree and initially with the goal of being a pe teacher it's kind of always what i wanted to do i think in school you know always look towards those figures as individuals who are you know just good people always enjoyed their lessons and the time with them and as my kind of journey throughout university went on and got exposed a little bit to the exercise physiology piece, like most college age individuals, you know, start weight training a little bit, taking a little bit more care in what you eat and how you train. It kind of really sparked an interest for me. Dr. Carl Holston at the time was at Brunel University and he was my undergraduate advisor. And I remember being in his office one day and just kind of hearing some of the things he was doing, seeing some of the things he had going on. It kind of made me realize there was an avenue for sports nutrition beyond that of physique and bodybuilding. Uh, so it really sparked an interest for me. I finished up at Brunel and, you know, had a lot of 
master's degree offers, Leeds Beckett, Loughborough, all of those places in the UK. But I'd always had a desire to live and work in the US. So I started looking online, started applying for jobs that I had absolutely no business applying for, and somehow stumbled across the internship application at Texas Tech University. I filled it out, uh, sent some emails, was fortunate enough that they got back to me and we had a series of Skype calls and the summer kind of drug on a little bit and it was getting the crunch time and they turned around and was like, look, if you want to do this thing, come out here. So this was about three days before I was meant to move up to Leeds and start a Leeds Beckett on their sports nutrition master's program. I moved to the US, took a kind of unpaid internship there, worked for six months, was fortunate enough to get hired full time. And concurrently at that time, you know, enrolled in that IOPN diploma. So we taught, you've spoke a lot already about kind of applying that science. It was a fantastic experience for me. I was working full time. And when I went home, I was, I was learning and I was kind of getting to directly apply it into my day to day. I stayed there for close to three years, had a fantastic support system there and had seen the program grow really wanted to do that myself one day and was fortunate at the University of North Texas at the time, which is kind of just outside of Dallas, was hiring for a sports nutrition role to kind of start and build out the program. I was lucky enough to get that position. I've been here for almost four years now, kind of building out a sports nutrition program for all of our collegiate teams. I work primarily with the American football team. We built staff. And kind of alongside that, been continuing my own education, master's degree. I am about 18 months into my PhD also. And yeah, just kind of really continuing to try and push the needle here, both professionally and in my own research interests too. That's great. I mean, I want to delve into various parts, various chapters, if you like, of your of your journey there. And as we were just chatting offline, you know, I've known you for a few years now and Every time I meet you, I notice your accent changes, <laughs> which is brilliant. And, and But that in itself is, I guess that's something we could quickly chat about, is the need to adapt and not just be stuck in your ways, metaphorically, physically, emotionally, certainly not professionally. You know, you've already shown that you were willing to to go for something that you, you you know that you felt well maybe I haven't got a chance at this but I'm going to go online and I'm just going to apply because hey you know it's like people say well you don't know if you don't try I mean look what happened to you if you, I mean can you imagine if you hadn't have done that yes you you would have probably been and it's a fantastic role being a PE teacher you, you might have done your masters at Leeds Beck excellent program there but you went down a different path let's just quickly revisit that part of your your life because i know a lot of listeners are going to be sitting there going i'd love to be doing all of that and there's a pandemic there's a lot of restrictions yes there's a lot of uncertainty into what roles are available but you know you can't just sit there and look at the classified so to speak and go oh there's a job i'm going to apply for it sometimes you have to really go for it don't you and get out there that's a pretty smart thing you did what i mean how did you even come up with the idea let alone the confidence to actually go and reach out to these people. So I believe in this instance, it was initially an application for individuals who were students of the university. But when I put the application in, you know, I kind of highlighted I was willing to come and work for free just to gain the experience. I would be available full time. You know, I was willing to put myself out there because as you and I both know, opportunities are pretty few and far between in the UK. And at the time, you know, as a fresh undergraduate, 
student just coming out of university, I probably was not going to be in the mix for any of those roles. So looking for ways to gain experience. And I think at the end of the day, if someone really puts themselves out there to you and wants to get hands-on experience and is willing to kind of put themselves in an environment, I think it's very difficult for people to turn down. I think fortunately it correlated with some staff turnover. And honestly, I think part of that was why I was lucky enough to get hired full-time also but just the opportunity to be exposed to that environment and treat almost treat every day as an unofficial job interview and kind of know that if you put the work in and do the right things, that individuals do notice that. And as cliched as that is and as kind of overused maybe some of those terms are, it did work out. So again, just being willing to be vulnerable and reach out and kind of put yourself out there to these people, you're going to get a catch eventually. So there's some interesting synergy here between What you've just said and the last podcast in the trenches podcast I did with Rich Chesser, where he said he was doing the course that he did, but actually, even at the time he had the awareness of, I wouldn't employ myself, (laughs) which is a, you know, that's an interesting place to be where you're looking at yourself reflectively and critically and going, do I absolutely have what it takes to be wanted, be desired. If you if, if you want to look at it from a sort of what well, it is a dating type scenario, you need to be attractive to the to the employer in this case. Were you aware of that? I guess you must have been. And were you aware of what your strengths and weaknesses were in terms of your your education? I guess generally the things that people see, the perception of of who that applicant was, that CV, that LinkedIn profile, were, were these things that you you took into account when you tried to get their attention? Yeah, absolutely. And you'd be the first to admit there was probably no shortfall knowledge at that time. You know, I hadn't done a nutrition specialized degree. Yes, I had some exposure to it, pretty heavy ex-phys emphasis, which we all know is very important. But in terms of kind of nutrition education, I was short. Hence why I, you know, invested and enrolled in the IOPN diploma at the time because I felt it was a nice kind of bridge and gap there. So I was able to kind of check that box. But I think at that stage, unfortunately, the employer was not looking for knowledge per se. They needed an individual who, you know, was kind of willing to work and maybe do some of the things which are not so glamorous, which we all have to do. You know, I still have to do those same things now, seven years down the line. And I think just a willingness to kind of put yourself in that environment, you know, everyone has to start somewhere and the quicker you can gain traction and experience, you know, the kind of easier the rest of those things will fall into place. So definitely aware of my shortfalls. Actually, I say that I probably was still applying for jobs that I didn't, didn't have any business applying for, but in terms of myself, I knew the things that I needed to work on, but Again, Lauren, I don't want to sound cliche, but just having a good work ethic and the willing to be vulnerable and put myself out here and like, hey, look, I'm I'm willing to move to the middle of nowhere to make this happen, you know. And I think that probably said a lot to the employer at the time. That's why they took a chance. Yeah, I think that's an important message. A real take home from there is, and I say this as an employer now, somebody who employs other people. I'm aware that. Many people are capable of getting their degrees and passing with good grades and so on, but that doesn't mean that they're willing to go further than that. They're willing to go that extra step, that extra level. Everyone's capable of it. It's not It's not like some unique sort of capacity, but a lot of people aren't willing to do that or too scared. 
perhaps, which is totally understandable, but it's that demonstration of your ability to fully commit to something that I think is something that you can express through your commitment to further education. Some people may feel that they don't need to participate in additional education programs, and there's arguments for and against that, including CPD, continuing professional development. Yes, you need to keep up to date with things, but also it's sort of sharpening your your axe, so to speak. It's keeping you in that situation where you're constantly moving forwards and developing yourself. And I think when you're doing that, people can see that, can't they? They can see your desire to do that, which then makes you somebody who who clearly is is worth bringing on the team because they know that you'll go that extra yard. And and I mean, you've been doing that now for years, haven't you? I mean, maybe just, I asked Rich Chester this, you know, if you were to look, if you were to talk to yourself, go back a few years, you're in a time machine and you're having a chat with yourself. Is there anything, would you have given yourself different advice knowing then what you currently know now? Is that, is that something you, you think you can even spontaneously come up with right now? I think so. I think one thing was to definitely have a little more patience. I felt at the beginning of my career, everything kind of happened pretty quickly. And then with that, your expectations grow, your desires to kind of get to the next, you know, metaphorical step kind of grow. And just being able to take a step back and assess where you are at. And I think there's still something now I struggle with a little bit. You know, I'm still relatively young in the grand scheme of things. And just reminding myself, being able to take a step back and look back at how far you've come, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we, everyone has this kind of grind mentality and you've got to keep pushing forward. It's, it's okay to kind of reflect on your, your journey and be proud of how far you've come. So I think one thing would be having a little more patience in that initial phase. And when I did, you know, the perfect opportunity came up for me. It allowed me to stay in state. It allowed me to walk into a scenario where there was nothing before. So there was a complete clean slate to build a program. The expectation probably wasn't very high. So it was pretty easy for me to make an impact, I would hope, and impress early on, which was definitely very helpful to help facilitate some of that growth. But I think being patient is a big one. And I think that ties in nicely with some of those points about going through the education curriculums and getting the degrees. I think having understanding of where you're at and maybe what it takes to obtain that job or position you want is important. And I think if you're committed to that process and you do stick with it and put the time in, you know, those are generally the people you'll see kind of rise into those positions and land those positions. And unfortunately, again, the positions are pretty few and far between and sparse, but if it's something that you truly desire and want to go after it's something even now being in the position of getting the higher individuals it's it's pretty easy to see who really kind of wants to be in it and who doesn't so you can figure that out pretty quickly yeah no well you know this is all great because there are of course many different opportunities that exist out there whether it's over in the states or all across europe and asia and in Africa. I mean, there's loads of sports teams and so on, but also there's there's very much the private practice environment, something that I've also done a lot of, which, you know, I'd like to encourage listeners not only to restrict themselves to trying to work in team sports or professional athlete environments, because there is, there's a lot of athletes out there, particularly with this pandemic and the way it is really encouraged people to take their health and fitness much more seriously with recreational triathletes and 
marathon running and cycling and all that sort of thing. But specifically with the team sport thing, was that something that you were instantly attracted to? Or was it, do you know what, that's an opportunity, I'm just going to go for it and then see, see how I like it. How did that specifically get on your radar? I think something I'd always been interested in being part of a sports team as a kid, um, playing a little football at university uh, and being involved in that. It was always an interest. And then obviously landing the position at Texas Tech and assisting with their American football team was kind of that first environment I was thrust into and just seeing the amount of behind the scenes work and the amount of individuals working, you know, the real team behind the team here and support staff here for a team like that is pretty significant. The number of individuals, you know, everyone moving in that same direction and it quickly becomes something you become very invested to, you know, you spend all day with these athletes collaborating with other staff members, you know, everyone is pulling in the same direction and wants the same results for that team. And it's, it's a great experience. You know, you get a lot of highs it's amazing to kind of see a whole year's work come together and the on-field result come together as you as you wish to and knowing that you were a small, small cog in that machine. But then also on the flip side, you know, it, it hurts when maybe things don't go that way you want. But then also being able to take a step back and realizing that, again, nutrition is a very small part of the machine was probably not the reason that team, you know, kind of make or break it there. But it's a fantastic environment. You get exposed to so many different individuals. And I think it really forces you as a practitioner to learn quickly and be able to adapt to the kind of multitude of personalities and individuals and backgrounds that you're working with in a team, especially, you know, a collegiate American football roster. You can have close to 120 individuals kind of in the building at one time and then throw into the mix close to 60, 70, 80 staff members. And a lot of them, that you're communicating with daily too. It forces you to kind of grow up very quickly and exposes you to a number of different things. Yeah. And there's a lot that I want to come back to, but I really want to get a feel for what it's like to be in your shoes, Charles, the director of sports nutrition at a, at a really great American university. And of course our listeners are from all over the world. We've got people listening who are from North America and will be more familiar with, some of the things that you're talking about. And then, of course, there are many others who are sort of fantasizing, if you like, about what it's like. But either way, there's a lot I think we can share with the audience. Just quickly, before we get into your role and how that works and your insights and thoughts and ideas and practice, get into practice in your context. You mentioned you were doing a PhD. You know, we're sort of still on your sort of biography here, so to speak. You're a busy man. We've identified that you do need to keep working on yourself, but there's many ways in which you can work on yourself. Why the doctorate and what is it that you're currently researching? The idea of doing a doctorate has kind of been in the back of my mind for a few years now and largely has come from the exposure to American football. American football is huge out here and I don't think you can truly understand that until you see it or experience it. And given the number of practitioners that hold roles like myself here, both at the professional and collegiate level, we, we don't have a whole lot of sports nutrition research in American football, even at the collegiate level where access to players is pretty good. You know, there's a number of kind of roadblocks and stumbling blocks in the way for getting that professional research done, bargaining agreements, kind of protection of athletes. So as practitioners, we're kind of left to extrapolate a little bit from the rugby union, the rugby league research 
any kind of team sport nutrition research and trying to apply that best we can. Fortunately, you have guys like Nessan, James Hudson, James Morhan doing some great research there, which we as an individual in practice in a similar sport, I lean on pretty heavily, but it kind of got a lot of questions that I've seen from being in the field as a practitioner that I would like to try and get some answers to and maybe just start building out a body of research for the sport and which will hopefully continue and other individuals will kind of get involved with that and kind of drive the research efforts because the availability to athletes is pretty good and the resources which are being afforded to nutrition staffs both at a professional collegiate level are there we have the resources to do a lot of nice things but it's making sure, you know, as you always say, is irrelevant. So getting the answers to some of these questions to make sure we are best utilizing those resources and budgets that we have. So just the exposure to the sport, being a practitioner in the sport now for close to seven years, just hopefully going to get some answers to some questions and, you know, hopefully build out that research area. Yeah, that's great. And the ability to increase the amount of knowledge and information that is contextually relevant it can only enhance your ability to make decisions as a practitioner which is why I, I like that phrase evidence-informed practice as opposed to evidence-based practice and that is a strong argument for why practitioners even if they have no desire to become researchers having that training to understand research how to differentiate different research methodologies and styles quality research from poor research, et cetera, does all help the practitioner, of course. And I think that that is a skill set I myself certainly benefited from when I started doing my master's and my doctorate. But all in all, what I want to do now, Charlie, is just try and get more into the mindset of being the director of sports nutrition at a, you know, in a collegiate setting. You've already mentioned the sheer numbers of people we know that American football is incredibly popular. Presumably there are other sports at University of North Texas, but I know in, in Texas, football is, in, is so popular. Why don't you just quickly give us an overview of what is a director of sports nutrition? And for you, what we'll do is we'll segue into sort of some of your day-to-day -day activities and explore that a little further. Yeah, so it's a role you will see pretty commonly throughout U.S. colleges and most schools, uh, especially at the Power Five level, those power conferences have an individual in place as director of sports nutrition, ultimately kind of oversight of the whole nutrition department. So some of these schools may have four or five practitioners on the ground working with the athletes. And it's important to remember, we are a moderate size university at 350 student athletes there's some schools out there with close to eight nine hundred student athletes so as a practitioner it's a pretty difficult role as one when i first had this role it was just me for close to a year we're now at three hopefully going to be at four pretty soon so really just kind of leading that department kind of having oversight for all sports but fortunately as we've grown we've been able to add practitioners to kind of take on different sports and different roles and kind of cut down that workload a little bit because obviously we know to be effective you need to have a presence you need to be on the ground with these teams getting good face time with them and when you have 12 teams as a practitioner one that's that's a pretty big workload and pretty difficult to really do a good job and be effective in practice 
And with that comes, you know, responsibilities for staffing, policies, budgeting is a big one. You know, when you have different sports bringing in different revenue streams, you know, some teams budget is a little bigger than others, but some teams have a lot more athletes than others. So trying to best allocate resources to those teams, but at the same time, keeping in the back of your mind, what makes sense based on the demands of the sport and the physiological and metabolic demands of the sport. So what the provisions are for one team may look very different to another. And with that, you know, in constant communication with administrators, with the business office, coaches, and then kind of drilling down to what most people understand in these roles is working with your sports medicine department, your strength conditioning, sports psychology. The past couple of years has become real big on the college campus and especially, you know, the past year or so with an ongoing pandemic when a lot of these athletes are still on college campuses and practicing and competing. So lots of moving parts. And I think difficult sometimes to manage all, especially when there's still a desire to be a practitioner and be on the ground with the athletes. So you're still fulfilling that piece, but there's also a lot of administrative stuff in the background. And especially when you get other employees, you know, you kind of have to take on a little bit of a leadership role and make sure you're developing them and being an outlet for them so that they can develop and grow and come to work every day with with a good attitude and be effective in their practice too. I think one of the biggest shocks to a newbie graduate in sport and exercise nutrition, you know, they've, let's say they've done their three, four year degree. Maybe they've got their post, they've gone straight on to do their postgraduate degree. Maybe they've done, you know, our IOPN diploma or whatever, although we do try and keep them in the real world as much as possible. But at the end of the day, when you reflect on all that training and education in exercise science, exercise physiology and sport and exercise nutrition, if it's possible for you to to even estimate this in the proportion of a of a typical day how much of it actually is all about exercise metabolism nutrition periodization and so on when we think about being a performance nutritionist is it all about performance nutrition is where i'm going from your perspective absolutely not and especially with the demographic here college age students you know 90% of these conversations are not about nutrition or metabolism or all of these things. And this was something that Rich spoke on really well in the previous podcast, that building these relationships and having conversations with athletes is just kind of part and parcel of the day, you know, and those need to be had to lay the foundations and build that rapport that when they do have a question, they can come to you and ask that confidently or when maybe you do need to address them and deliver them some information that they can respect you as an individual and understand that, you know, you are there to help them. Yes, those conversations happen about nutrition and some individuals, you can kind of take a deep dive and really give some specific recommendations and dive into things like carbohydrate periodization and different supplement protocols. And you know where I'm going with this, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, for a lot of these programs, the nutrition practitioner is one of the first person they see in the morning when they show up for breakfast and one of the last persons they see at night when they leave for dinner. So you are around them a lot and you know no one wants to be drilled on the nutrition all the time. You don't want to become known as the nutrition police. Athletes kind of confine in you a lot. You are kind of a presence in a body that they probably can come to and 
have some of those conversations. And I've had many conversations with my athletes over over the years, which you know probably wouldn't have happened if they didn't trust me. They had nothing to do with nutrition, but they trust you as an individual and a person when you're around and present with them a lot. And yeah, I do think sometimes as a younger practitioner, that's some something you make a mistake with is kind of going all in with this information, great information, evidence-informed, evidence-based, whatever you want to call it. But at some point you have to take a step back and kind of really assess what you're doing and insert those when necessary or when an athlete is kind of truly ready to be receptive to that. And then on the flip side, you know, knowing knowing when it's time to stay, take a step back and, you know, understand that nutrition is, again, that small cog in the machine when these athletes are being pulled in a hundred different directions with different people trying to get their time and effort for things, whether that's treatment, additional strength and conditioning work, meeting with the academic advisor, meetings with their position coach. They're getting pulled in so many different directions. You need to know when you can kind of pile it on and push it a little bit. And you also need to know when to take a step back. Absolutely. And I think one thing that you've mentioned there is, is trust. And that is, it is such a critical part of your role as an effective successful if you want to call it that practitioner because at the end of the day they're not going to talk to you if they don't really trust you or at least they're not going to talk to you properly and they certainly aren't going to follow your advice because you need buy-in don't you and i guess the advantage a practitioner has on a in a one-to-one setting with a client is they have much more time with their client, with their athlete. They may be just one-on-one in an office or online or on a telephone. But when you're when you're with a team, you're talking about a lot of people. And it's not just the players. You've got, like you say, the SNC, the sports scientists, the medical people, friends, family, the chefs, the bagman. I mean, there's all sorts of people that you want on your side. How do you do that? How do you approach that on your day-to-day basis of trying to get your approach to performance nutrition implemented. What are the sort of challenges to that? And what are the little tricks, the strategies that you use on a day-to-day basis? I think number one is being visible and getting FaceTime with these athletes and trying to catch them in those informal areas. You you made a great point about, yes, you do have a lot of time and in that one-on-one setting, you can kind of unravel some things and get some good information. But Again, these athletes have so many commitments as it is. Not a lot of them are going to give up 30, 45 minutes of their time to come and have that one-on-one session. They need immediate, actionable information that they can implement and take along with them on their day. So trying to be visible in the weight room, in the dining facility, when they're on the treatment table, you know, great time to catch them. They can't, they can't really go too far there. And just having that presence and being available. And I think that's something that the staff really appreciate too, especially when nutrition is still kind of that new kid on the block. And I think this is probably something which makes being a consultant or being in a part-time role really difficult is a lot of those other staff members are there day in, day out. And you're able to have those informal conversations a lot more frequently and be available. So that's something I've really tried to do. It is difficult because my my office is on the top floor of the building. So I'm up and down the stairs all day trying to catch these athletes because you're trying to give them actionable guidance because they're not here all day under your supervision and purview. So they may do the right things when they're here, but what are they doing when they leave and 
in the other 10 hours, 12 hours they're away from the facility the rest of the day. So that's a big one. And I would encourage anyone to do. And again, this was something that Rich said, the same thing, instead of kind of locking yourself in the office, making spreadsheets and handouts and infographics, the value of just getting out there and having conversations, being visible is, is number one for me. Even last week, I, I jumped into one of our strength and conditioning groups and lifted with, you know, a group of the players, you know, just being vulnerable and kind of letting your guard down, kind of showing these guys, you know, that side of you too, because, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're still human beings too, and so are they. And I, that was a conversation I had with a practitioner recently who works at the professional level. From the outside looking in, everyone looks at these individuals as, you know, athletes and you know, these super talented individuals, especially at a professional level, making a lot of money. But at the end of the day, they're, they're human beings too, just kind of treating them in that manner. And with that and over time, it makes it a very enjoyable enjoyable environment to be around. You know, that's something we spoke about at the start and being in that team setting, just having those fun interactions day in, day out. And it makes your work as a practitioner a lot easier when that is in place. Yeah, it's a team, isn't it? You need to take that word very seriously because if you're not part of the team or perceived as part of the team one way or the other, you're an outsider and that's going to be difficult. I mean, our job is a difficult one at the best of times. <laughs> but yeah, if you if you don't make those extra efforts, then like you say, if, if you're just sitting at the other end of the canteen on your laptop, hoping somebody's going to come talk to you, that's probably not going to work. And like you say, if you're in your office, doing your fancy infographics or spreadsheets, you know, that's a bit of an issue. Maybe we should just quickly talk about some of the ways of getting outside of the box on that in terms of communication. Like we've just, you know, we talked about infographics, but then maybe there's a way you can communicate to your athletes. You know, we, we know about social media, of course. We know about YouTube videos. I know myself, like when I was at the World Cup three years ago now, I can't believe it. One of the ways I used to communicate with my players who didn't all speak English, found some of them didn't speak English at all, was I found WhatsApp was an incredibly useful tool to broadcast videos or messages. I would broadcast a picture of, of a urine specimen pot. <laughs> Exciting times in my in my life. That got a message through. Or I would record a video of an influencer player who would translate something for me, and then I would re-broadcast that. That's just a couple of snippets of some of the things that I would do. Bearing in mind you're one of... You just said, you know, over a hundred athletes, maybe. How do you get inside of their mind or get their attention when you can't meet them in the stairwell or bump into them in the locker room? What What are the, some of the things that, that have worked for you? Yeah, I think most practitioners would be able to speak to the last year and definitely upskilling themselves in this manner and trying to get deliver their messages while not being in the building. And Something that's worked really well for us is we do have a platform, kind of a team engagement platform. So I guess it's more or less like a WhatsApp just for the team. So it's very easy to go in there, share files, messages, different position groups, the whole team, whatever that may be. So that's a big engagement platform for us. We try not to bombard the athletes with successive messages or kind of overload them in that sense. But it is a great way to kind of get stuff in the hands on their phone. Social media is another one. Like we have our own Twitter page where we, you know, we'll share quick nutrition information, quick tips. Every student athlete loves to be featured on the social media. So if the athlete has a good week, this past football off season, we had a nutrition MVP every week and they 
and accountability points for those kind of things. So it may on the surface see seem a little bit childish, but these guys are competitors. You know, the if you want to win nutrition MVP of the week, you, all of these guys are sending through pictures of their meals at home and what they're doing outside of the building and going above and beyond. We're maybe incentivizing them a little bit to to achieve that. And that's been really big this off season, especially when we talk about having the ability to cook at home again, when they're here and we're providing the food, I feel pretty confident that most guys are doing the right thing, but those choices when they're away from the facility and what they're doing in their own time is what really makes you wonder. So that's been a big one in getting guys in the kitchen you know, even if it's just cooking one of their own meals a day, I think that's a huge step to not only their performance day in, day out, but their health also making sure that they are putting the right things in their body when they're away from the facility. So I'd say those are probably two of the biggest ones, kind of having that engagement platform and especially the use of social media, but at the same time, trying to make it fun and not another thing they have to pay attention to and do so if that's creating competition around it you know something i heard graham close speak about once was kind of showing results of the body composition assessments using kind of bricks to show how much muscle was built so when we body composition test the teams we'll we'll set up a display and show the results maybe you know the brick shows the muscle gained and large shows the fat lost as a team you know guys find that fascinating and it sparks conversation and motivates them to pay attention to their nutrition so anything again that can kind of make it fun and interesting and not just handouts brief education talks powerpoints you know trying to appeal to the 17, 22 year old kind of range of just trying to make it interesting. Another angle to that is we've, we've talked about the fact that you want to get buy-in, they want to have trust, but that simple process of, of listening, that is also something that we need to do. We don't just want them to listen. We need to listen to them. Don't we? How have you found that process from right when you started at Texas tech, obviously you would have totally found yourself in, in an entirely alien environment, of course. I'm presuming that you've obviously found things that surprised you, but you've also learned a lot on the way because learning on the job, an obvious theme here from our conversation today is a lot of these things you weren't taught. You've had to learn and adapt and overcome and and so on. And part of that process is listening, obviously. Tell me a bit more about, about that. Yeah, you're exactly right. And if I just reflect for a second, when I first started at Texas Tech and was thrown in that environment, it was honestly, it was difficult. You have athletes at that time who were the same age or maybe older than I was and knowing how to interact with them. Again, I'm the guy who speaks funny. Everyone is asking me questions about the UK and England. And that's kind of my only way of communicating with those athletes, but maybe some might benefit too, you know, it kind of spark conversation quickly and allow me to be forced into that environment instead of being the kind of nervous fly on the wall. You know, athletes were approaching me because they were interested, you know, this guy's clearly very different. He is not from West Texas, but the listening to the athletes, I think is really important, especially as a support staff member in a, in a sport where Everything is dialed up from your plays and your schemes. They're often always told what they have to do. So taking the opportunity to get feedback from athletes on what you're doing and what you're providing, and then also letting them have an input and maybe 
their goals and their motivations and maybe how nutrition can help with that. You know, this topic of behavior change has become a big talking point, thankfully, in sports nutrition. And I found that if you give the athlete some input on their goals or maybe where they want to be, that motivation is typically a little bit higher and allows you to tap into that, help hold them accountable, but then give them the tools and resources that they need to achieve that goal as opposed to kind of prescribing a goal or an arbitrary number on the scale or body composition range where they need to be in. Now, some sometimes there, there is some of that that comes into play, but taking time to listen to the athlete where they're at and how can nutrition help them achieve that goal or what they're looking to achieve in their time here, I think is really important. And with that, the, the follow-through and adherence tends to be largely better. This is great. I'm I'm personally finding this fascinating. So what I want to do now though, Charles, is get a better understanding of the specific context that you're operating in. And by that, I mean, you're in a collegiate setting, you've got these big guys, it's American football. Some of the listeners will have an understanding of what the sport is, but chances are they've not actually worked in American football or I know some of them do. I know some of our listeners are working at the highest level of American football, but it's it's really fascinating to hear what you're dealing with, with your guys. So I asked you before, or I mentioned before, you know, I want to get an idea of, you know, you wake up in the morning and you get to work. Just take us through either a typical day or a few examples of a typical day of what your role entails in, you know, in reality, what's actually happening. Yeah, great question. I would obviously fluctuates a little bit throughout. And your the boss year, isn't listening, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'd be surprised if he listened to this. It obviously fluctuates a little bit between the time of year. Right now we are kind of finishing up our off-season and training block. Normally arriving to the office anywhere between five and six a.m. in the morning to kind of make sure we are to set up for the day in terms of our fueling station and our nutrition center that we have on offer to the team, which is an area which is stocked and available for them throughout the day, you know, additional nutrition provisions that we provide. And we're typically bringing in a breakfast for the team too. And during the off season, a lot of times these meals are mandatory. If we're investing to bring in the additional food, we expect you to be there. But with that, it's just a great opportunity to check in with guys as they're coming in in the morning. Again, as I mentioned, you're probably one of the first faces they see. So you can really kind of set the tone for the day and what they're coming into the facility for, you know, kind of greeting them, checking in with them, following up with anything I maybe saw the previous day. And from there, these athletes are going into their individual workouts. So Normally times where I'm back and forth from the office, kind of working on anything I need to get done for individuals that they have asked for or that we're working on and, and trying to get get back down there to, again, just kind of be visual, have a presence, continue to be checking in with athletes. It's amazing when athletes are lifting and conditioning how many nutrition questions kind of come up when those endorphins are flowing and they're feeling pretty good. So trying to capitalize on some of those conversations right there. Following that, we're typically straight into a mandatory lunch too. So again, just another great opportunity to spend time in a dining facility, maybe eat with the guys. You won't believe how many kind of impromptu consults that take place in the dining facility. But again, a great opportunity while athletes are eating, building their plate, 
and have these questions to be able to capitalize on that instead of dragging them back up to the facility later in the day, having them sit across the table from me in my office. So as you can kind of see, just having that availability is something that I'm not very negotiable on. I will block out that time to make sure I'm on hand and available to the athletes. Following that, at this time of year, they may have meetings or kind of go on for the day, treatments, those kind of things. So always kind of in a state of preparation. There's always an ongoing topic. You know, I have a big whiteboard of tasks for the next couple of months here, whether that's a new policy or protocol we're putting together. There is always the be ordering, whether that's meals, additional food, supplements, whatever that may be. That's a big part of these roles. You know, you are feeding a lot of athletes and individuals. And as Rich said again in the previous podcast, anything to do with food is kind of expected to land land on you and you're expected to take care of it. But again, I try and dedicate that to a small window of the day. I know that's a big talking point for practitioners out here, the amount of burden and time that they spend doing that. But, you know, I try and spend just a small window each day to kind of handle any of those needs. And then from there, as the day kind of gets towards the end, you know, kind of I'm a big list guy, kind of building out the to-do list for the next day, any topics that need to be done, making sure I check in with the sports medicine staff, if there's anything that I need to be involved in. Strength and conditioning staff also. I think the strength and conditioning coach in collegiate sport in the US is probably your number one ally. If they're not on your side, your job is going to be incredibly difficult. So making sure our I'm staying in the loop of them, having those conversations. What what did they see today? Is there anywhere that I can help them or follow up with certain athletes? And following that, that's about it for the day. So, so take me a little bit deeper into the actual feeding of these athletes. So the point of this chat is not to talk about the science behind periodization and where that fits within the training season and schedule and, and so on, we can have that chat another time perhaps. But what I'm interested in is, is just from a purely practical perspective and the role that you play as you integrate between the player or players, the chef, the people in charge of budgets and the choices that are made on a day-to-day basis in terms of what's physically ladled out and is available. Tell us a bit more about that because that in itself is quite complicated, isn't it? It is. And you bring up a great point in there about budgets too. Again, you are feeding a large team, but you have people that you need to please upstairs and make sure that you're staying kind of within the budget that has been provided for you. And that's a big operation itself. And then communicating your expectations or your desires to the culinary staff and chef. We're fortunate here that we do have a self-operated dining department. So All of the chefs are employed by the campus, the university employees. It is not outsourced. So again, that's another relationship that you're constantly trying to evolve and develop because if you can include those individuals and make them kind of feel as if they're an extension of the team, chances are that the food is presented a little bit nicer, tastes a little bit better, then your athletes are happy and willing to go in there and eat every day. So that's a big part that people forget you know, and kind of managing these operations and they eat in there multiple times a day, year round. So being able to diversify your offerings a little bit, change it up when needed while still meeting 
you know, those performance nutrition needs, making sure they're getting adequate protein. You know, we have a number of athletes and individuals that are over 300 pounds, you know, it's pretty difficult for them to achieve those goals without these additional meals that are being provided. So when they go in there, the, the offerings better line up with what I'm telling them. Otherwise they're going to turn around and come to me and be like, Hey, you told me I need to be eating more of food X. You're not providing it for me. And then beyond that, we've been really fortunate as the budget has grown through my time here to be able to offer these additional meals and snacks for say, and anyone listening to this who is in North America and is familiar with the college setting, the interpretation of a snack, I think, differs from college to college and what you can provide and get away with. But, you know, for a college athlete kind of engaging in this volume of training and the outside life commitments, you know, without it, it'd be very difficult for them to achieve their daily and calorie needs. So it's a huge operation. And I'm sure there's, there, there are individuals in the U.S., probably speak to it a little bit better than I can that have standalone facilities where they're only their student athletes eat and it opens up a whole nother point. And I know something that you spoke briefly with Pratik when he was on here speaking about American football, you know, it is almost an arms race at the collegiate level that you are trying to have the best dining hall, the most offerings, the most meals and snacks when you're trying to recruit young athletes out of high school because they want to know if they're stepping foot on your college campus that they're going to get taken care of, have what they need provided to them so that they can develop physically and, you know, hopefully have a shot of playing at the next level. So it's a huge operation, which goes way beyond just kind of feeding for health and performance. Let's just switch angles then to some of the inevitable situations that occur and by that, I mean, there's travel there, you know, even at the collegiate level, you, you've still got some travel, maybe unlike in the UK, where that might be a short coach journey, that that's a full on from one end of the continent to the other type situation. <laughs> so that's an interesting one, just like it is in pro team sports, but also illness, injury, just give me some perspective and, and sort of an overview of some of those situations that you're having to deal with as the performance nutrition director there obviously injury is a big one and being in a contact sport injuries are fairly frequent both from you know contact and non-contact nature that pure volume of athletes you know unfortunately it's something we we do encounter as a practitioner so i think that's why that collaboration piece is really important typically most university and colleges out here have large sports medicine departments so being able to handle the nutrition element of an injury is really valuable for that athlete and that staff too that maybe doesn't have the nutrition background that you do but you need to have that relationship in place in the first place for them to be able to include you in that process which may include a physician an athletic trainer the rehab process you know there's a lot of time points here even pre and post surgery where nutrition can be really value valuable for this individual so having that relationship is uh, is key with that staff to make sure that they're letting you in on that process and involving you so that you can help the athlete you know ultimately come back better than ever is always always the goal and it can also be a great time point you know to maybe capitalize on nutrition with that athlete you know that's something i've had many practitioners speak about before it's kind of a a positive of an unfortunate event that maybe they're a little bit more vulnerable and willing to take some of that nutrition guidance in that state. And it can kind of develop into everlasting habits, hopefully. 
So obviously, something did you see? And we won't get too much into the protocols and nuances of that and the exact science. But again, you know, things like concussions and tendon ligament injuries, you know, we have, you know, science and research is moving along pretty nicely in that area. And it's knowing what you can provide for the athletes. Again, we do work with some regulations from the NCAA in terms of what we can and can't provide. So again, making sure that you're being diligent in that sense and not getting yourself in trouble and involving the necessary parts parties to make sure that you know what you want to do that you can legally and viably do that and the illness and especially you know coming off the past year global pandemic and being covid tested three times a week during the competitive season to ensure that can go ahead you know is a lot of moving parts and i think probably a lot of practitioners could speak to this this past year you have athletes quarantined in hotels you have athletes going home for time periods Trying to coordinate nutrition for an athlete who is quarantined in a hotel is not an easy task, especially when you're in season and there may be an expectation that, you know, they're going to be out of quarantine and they're expected to play within a few days because they're an individual who's needed. So certainly challenging and something that you see a lot. And again, just nature of it, intense training, the travel, it does come up. So I think the biggest part of that is just having a good working relationship with the sports medicine staff and helping out where you can there. Again, nutrition is a pretty valuable piece in that sense, but you want to make sure that that staff is utilizing you and involving you in those conversations so that you can, I guess, show your value and improve that process. Yeah, there's a strong undercurrent here of the importance of things like communication, isn't there? Developing relationships all part and parcel of that team environment. You're all part of a team. And as you mentioned, a team, a machine, there are many moving parts and nutrition is is one part of that. And I guess the difficult thing that we have is we spend all this time learning about sport and exercise nutrition. We're listening to podcasts. We're reading journals and papers. Being able to position yourself with the right amount of perspective on where you fit in that machine of moving parts. And I guess being able to step back and knowing when not to get overly involved, because quite frankly, what you're doing isn't necessarily the most important thing. How does that work for you? And again, I guess on reflection, you may have found some of that a shock at the early stages of your career, particularly when you've got, you know, the power and importance of the coach, head coach and the coaches the sports medicine people, the, the S&C coaches, there is a bit of a hierarchy there when it comes to the nutritionists. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? There definitely is. And I think a big part of that is knowing when to fight your battles, you know, knowing what you're willing to kind of lay out there for and make a priority and knowing and understanding when maybe it's not the most important thing or it is not as big of a deal as you may think it is. Yes, nutrition is your bias and what you believe is the absolute difference maker. But I do think it's important to know, again, and something we alluded to earlier in the conversation of when you can kind of push it a little bit or when you need to take a step back because it's not worth tarnishing that relationship for or maybe how that impacts future interactions. And I definitely think as you become more experienced and have seen this for multiple years, it's pretty easy to say that out loud and take a step back but earlier in my career yeah it was something I definitely struggled with especially stepping into a role where there was no nutrition program beforehand so I have this laundry list of ideas all these great things that I'm going to do but without taking the time to observe 
you know, the current dynamic, how that may intertwine with everything else that is going on. These individuals in place and some of these staff members know these athletes far better than I do and the current kind of state of the program and what is needed. So again, just being able to take a step back and sometimes, you know, the best thing to do is listen and observe and and understand that maybe what is the low-hanging fruit? How can you be actionable based upon the information that you're receiving and how you're hearing? And I think not only will that lead to greater success, but better appreciation from those other staff members too. And then they are more willing to come to you when they do have ideas and involve you in those things because you're absolutely right. There is a hierarchy and whether or not people like to admit it or not, you know, nutrition still is the new kid on the block behind the strength and conditioning and sports medicine. And especially in the U S collegiate environment, those have been mainstays of programs for a long time now. And yes, nutrition has grown massively here in the past decade and even in the time period that I have been out here, but it is still a, a step behind. And, you know, if we want to kind of be up there alongside them one day, very important to take a step back and just kind of know how you fit into the bigger picture of things. Absolutely. Yeah. So much of this is simply just being aware, isn't it? Just ensure that you're aware, keep your eyes open, keep your, keep your ears, ears on, so to speak. Just briefly, because we're running out of time here, Charles. Can't believe we're packing this conversation out. Just specifically, collegiate football. You know, there's different levels of football, obviously. What have you come to realize about the unique needs, requirements, if you like, of the athletes that you're working with, at least in the teams that you've been involved with, to differentiate maybe from the equivalent of of the Premier League guys. What are your observations on that so far? Yeah, I think a big one and something you could probably make the comparison to for the UK listener, maybe the academy setting leading into kind of that first team role is just number one is meeting the energy demands of these athletes. You know, they're all incredibly gifted very well genetically gifted and making sure that you are stacking up with the big large volumes of training that we see in the collegiate setting during a phase where they are still growing especially in a sport where there's always been a kind of a first and quest for size and mass and there's plenty of research papers out there showing larger individuals tend to go on and have more successful careers at the professional level unfortunately you know, the view of that is changing a little bit. Instead of pursuing arbitrary numbers and arbitrary weight gain, you know, a lot of programs are body composition testing. They have those resources now. Our own program, we use a fat-free mass index calculator and maybe take some different measurements to have a better understanding of where athletes could be and need to be during their time here. And that's another one, you know, giving it time to, you know, we are dealing with these athletes for four, maybe five years of their playing career, and only a small percentage of them are going to go on and play at the next level. So yes, while performance nutrition is very important, we're also trying to ingrain good habits for health and, you know, just kind of general well-being because they're not always going to be a college football player lifting, practicing, conditioning day in, day out. And I think that's been a big conversation I've noticed the past few years is kind of helping athletes to that transition when they do come out of sport and that they do have good habits in place that they can eat like a so-called normal human being. Alongside that, 
again, there, there is always that kind of first request to add muscle mass and things. So making sure that our provisions, you know, are providing sufficient calories, sufficient protein, but at the same time, still keeping health in the picture, making sure that these young athletes are getting adequate fruits and vegetables in, making sure that any supplementation that we're providing is an effective use of our money and resources, but also that these athletes are compliant with it. You know, you may have the best protocol in the world, but if your athlete doesn't like pills or doesn't want to take supplements, then are you able to provide it in a food? Is there another way around it? So in terms of our overall philosophy and needs, I think it's pretty simple. The biggest thing is getting athletes to do it. And again, I think our whole conversation kind of previously highlights that, that there is nothing magic in terms of the philosophy or the interventions or what we're providing, but it's getting athletes to consistently stack good days on top of each other. And over time, you see in the changes in the bodies you see day in, day out. And when you do the body composition testing and see the results, it it quickly shows you the guys who are doing the right things day in, day out and kind of buying in with your protocols and procedures. Absolutely. And what you say there is consume me for many years is, is literally this massive gap that exists between science and practice, which is one of the purposes of this conversation is this, this is one small tool that we can use to help bridge that gap for people. Wow. I mean, we've talked about so much stuff. We could keep going on forever, but we're not going to do that. There's just a couple of things I wanted to to just quickly chat about before we before we end this this conversation. Supplements. Now, particularly when you're working in elite sport, professional sport in your environment, I know, you know, supplements are there. We use the phrase food first. There's a fine line between the needs of a sponsor, the needs of the athlete, the practical benefits of supplementation, particularly with the massive units that you're working with. And I work with with rugby, for example. You're in an interesting place as the practitioner when there is a commercial angle there to a certain extent. I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but I personally have always found that a difficult one at times. How do you find that bearing in mind that, you know, you will have that as part of your, of your day-to-day work is, is the fact that, you know, supplements are a necessity one way or the other. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely challenging in a collegiate environment. So the governing body of collegiate sports, the NCAA does allow you to provide certain supplements, but it also provides a pretty long list of things as an institution you cannot provide. So for an example, a lot of my athletes take creatine, but I cannot provide creatine to them. They have to go out, they have to source it and purchase it themselves. If they wish to take it, I cannot provide it for them. So that instantly is a very difficult challenge because you are constantly faced with supplement questions from the athlete. And whether that is a supplement like creatine, which has a wealth of good evidence, you know, great, go for it. But on the flip side, maybe something which doesn't quite have the evidence or stack up to, you know, what you would like them to be taking. So navigating those conversations is definitely a challenge. And we are working with drug tested athletes here. So there is also a duty and due diligence as a practitioner to make sure that you are giving them the correct information 
and making sure that they are sourcing third-party tested products, that they're sharing batch numbers with you so you can record that on your end and also protecting yourself. You know, obviously you have a duty to respect the athlete, but at the end of the day, if you're not giving uh, proper sound advice, you could probably land yourself out of the job pretty quickly, God forbid. So that's definitely a challenge, but at the same time, you're right, they are especially in collegiate football, you're working with young university age males, like supplements are going to be part of the discussion and part of the picture. And I think, again, this is something I've heard many people speak about. And perhaps I've even heard you speak about this before. If it is something that's safe and it's not detrimental, kind of stepping in and shutting those conversations down or crushing an athlete's belief is probably doing more harm than good. You know, so provided it's batch tested, uh, it's not doing any harm. The evidence relatively stacks up. You know, I, I'm okay. I'm okay with that because it's maybe a segue into another conversation. Hey, sure, you can do that. But have you thought about doing this too? How about when you take this product, we also do this. You know, and maybe you can stack habits there, and it's a great segue to be able to maybe improve. You know, a number of habits and factors which are going into this equation over time. In terms of what we provide, it's kind of the same discussion as earlier. Is it a good use of our resource? During the winter months, we will provide vitamin D supplements because beyond coming to the facility to train, I know a lot of these guys are going back to the house or the dorm room and they're watching Netflix and playing PlayStation for the rest of the day. And even in Texas, during those months, they're not getting adequate sunlight. They're not synthesizing vitamin D from the sun. So you know, things like that make sense, we provide, but again, not every athlete will take them. So that's important to kind of monitor and understand and who is compliant with your strategies because, again, just because you're providing it and have it available and the athletes aren't taking it, you know, maybe it's not the best approach after all. And and at the end of the day, you do have a budget to to stick to and, you know, food is important. So maybe if we could take some of that money and improve the food quality or add additional items in there, maybe that's a better use of things. So there's a number of things that kind of play into that picture. But again, I think giving athletes the tools and their education to kind of understand that and make a decision for themselves if that's something they want to do but being very hot on the uh, drug testing piece too. You know, you're a drug test athlete, the risk associated with not sourcing third-party batch-tested supplements is not worth the risk. And NCAA athlete fails a drug test for a performance-enhancing drug, they will lose a year of eligibility and are at risk of losing their academic scholarship. So definitely a cost-benefit analysis there, and there's not many things out there that I think are worth risking that. So being honest with them, but at the same time, if an athlete is taking something that is safe, it's not detrimental, it may not be beneficial, but if it's batch-tested, they really believe in it. You know, Maybe, again, it's a segue to kind of add to their knowledge and, and get them to do some additional things alongside that. Amazing. I mean, there's so much here, isn't there? When you, you know, I mentioned earlier that being a performance nutritionist is so much more than sport and exercise nutrition. And I think that's clear in today's conversation and in previous conversations with similar practitioners and future conversations. And obviously the little tidbits I throw in over the, over the years now on this podcast, having, having been in practice myself for a long time now, Let's end this just with a little bit of a, a bit of advice from you, Charles. So there are people that are listening who are going, do you know what? 
maybe they're in North America. So they're not necessarily looking to live in another country, but they're doing their sport and exercise science degrees. Maybe they've done their master's. Maybe they're doing their PhDs, but they're going, I want to do what Charles Ashford is doing. Or maybe they're in Europe somewhere in the UK. They're wondering, well, what, what do they need to do to get to do what you're doing? Bearing in mind, of course, in the US, you know, these opportunities may or may not be available to people that are registered dietitians, sport dietitians, et cetera. That's an interesting piece too, which I know that you obviously have particular firsthand knowledge of. Just for the listeners that are interested in that, what sort of things do you think they need to know? And most importantly, the things they need, they really should achieve or at least be aiming to achieve, including their education to maybe have a better chance of it. Yeah, I think absolutely education is kind of that first hurdle to kind of get your application in the inbox of someone or on their desk to even look at in the first place. But how are you differentiating yourself from other applicants? You know, if that's the first hurdle, pretty much every individual has the undergraduate, the master's degree, the additional credentials. So what are you doing to make your application stand out? And I think, therefore, it's important to be following that, especially if the individual is already in America. Something I've learned about collegiate sport is everyone knows everyone in some way, shape or form. And there is there a way that you can speak to an individual involved in that program or at that university to maybe share some insights or make that connection with you? Because again, even when we put positions out, we get a lot of applicants and you know how can you stand out from other individuals when the kind of required qualifications and what you're looking for everyone meets those so what is your difference making you know what can different experiences can you add on there a lot of times you know we mentioned earlier strength and conditioning staffs are involved in this pretty heavily you know do you have a background in exercise science exercise physiology uh, strength conditioning those things can you kind of display a a kind of wide breadth of knowledge as opposed to just being the nutrition professional i think especially when you're going to be working so closely with that support staff, being able to show different aspects of your knowledge can make you stand out a little bit. And if you're fortunate enough to get to the stage where you have an interview or go for that process, showing that you can be an individual who can be vulnerable and get in front of these athletes, wide array of personalities, different individuals that you'll be working with, you know, again, to be someone fortunate enough now where you're to hire for these positions, if You've got to the stage of having an interview. You, the knowledge is, you know, there's a base level of knowledge. We can teach the additionals as we go along. Or we can develop that as we go along. But to put you in a team environment, you have the responsibility of that team to be able to interact with players, coaches, support staff, and do that in a both confident and competent manner. That's pretty hard to teach. And I think it shines through pretty quickly when you start speaking to individuals. And so again, I know, I know it's cliched and we've spoken about relationships a lot today, but to be able to do that is a huge part in hopefully playing into your success as a performance nutrition practitioner. So yeah, any way that you can differentiate yourself. And again, I know it's uncomfortable for some people and it doesn't come naturally. And it's something that definitely gets better over time. But that's why having some of those experiences beforehand is so important, right? We always speak about it doesn't matter the level. You may not be getting the experience at the highest level, but interacting with human beings and encountering different scenarios and situations and how you work through that as a professional will quickly kind of put you on a pedestal and I think make you stand out as a candidate. 
Absolutely. I think you, you summed that up very well. There are different perspectives, perhaps, depending on the role and level of seniority and where you are in the world and so on. But, you know, the way I like to advise people on this and what I look for in my own team is being fit for purpose or having the potential to be fit for purpose. Just because you've got a PhD, for example, does not mean you're going to be a great practitioner. You might be a great researcher, but not necessarily a great practitioner. So are you fit for purpose or can you be fit for purpose? But like you say, I think the reality, the real reality is when a role becomes available, a lot of people will apply for it. So I think that's great advice. Learn how to get their attention and uh, find different ways. Don't stalk them. But do find ways of getting in front of that person one way or the other, even if it's something like LinkedIn. You know, there are ways of doing that nowadays. Listen, Charles, we could go on for hours about this and we'll definitely have you back to talk more about your work as a researcher a little bit further into your PhD. So good luck with the rest of that. I know I know that you're making great strides with that, and I'm going to be fascinated to see what you find in in your research. And we can have a more technical chat at that point, which would be awesome. But I wanted to thank you for your time today, Charles. It's been fascinating to hear about you and your journey and your knowledge and insights. And I'm absolutely sure that the listeners will really appreciate that and the practitioners will resonate with you as well. So all in all, it's, it's been a great opportunity to extract that knowledge and experience from you. Thank you, Charles. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. Okay, folks. Well, that takes us to the end of this In the Trenches episode with Charles Ashford. All I can say is take care, everyone. Make sure you do go to www.theiopn.com to get access to the rest of our podcast and everything else we do at the IOPN. But for now, I just want to say stay safe and stay well, everyone. Take care.